Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. from yesterday uh, I was trying to be nice I was trying to be nice good morning on a Wednesday Mike McNamara in for a Wednesday edition of All Marine Radio hope you're having a good day good morning good afternoon to some of you well I'm sure someplace around the world that they're listening to this and they do because I hear from them So I have two things in my head today. Uh, Governor of Texas said no more, uh, no more masks, and uh, he's being roundly criticized for that action, as are other governors. So it's it's Texas, Mississippi, Iowa, North Dakota. And Montana have all said no masks. No mask mandate. So you can still wear yours if you want to. And if you're at risk, you certainly should, right? So the question is, uh, in this whole last year, when the public health experts have rarely been right, and they've damaged people's livelihood beyond, I don't know, anything that's been calculated that I've seen so far, what has been the damage to um, American business and gross national product as a result of things that were done that have been largely irrelevant in terms of preventing the spread of this virus? 
I haven't seen a calculation because of that. But chalk up the entire bar business for a year. Um, chalk up what percentage of the restaurant business for a year. And that you could start there and then go to all the entertainment industry in terms of movies, plays across the nation and just begin adding anything that would gather people and start doing that. So I was looking for the number of deaths in the United States. And I saw this article, and it's written by a guy named Justin Fox. It, appear, it appears in Bloomberg. And it says, and it's this, how COVID's death toll compares with other things that kill us. And so, and so, I'll just read some excerpts from it. Because I, I found it very balanced. And, um... And, and I enjoyed reading it. First paragraph. Over the past year, the death toll from COVID-19 has been compared to deaths from lots of other causes, ranging from seasonal influenza to war to heart disease to car accidents to swimming pool drownings. At 500,000 and counting, U.S. COVID fatalities are now a lot higher than annual deaths from most of those other things. They're also much higher than any short-term infectious disease, since the 1918 influenza pandemic, which killed an estimated 675,000 people in the U.S., the proportionate equivalent, so he's, he's translating that number, if it was today's population, would be 2.2 million. So the Spanish influenza, four times COVID. I'm writing that down, just for the record. <clears throat> the 1957-58 influenza pandemic killed an estimated 116,000 people, the equivalent of 223,000 today. HIV AIDS has killed an estimated 700,000 Americans, but that took four decades. The overall number isn't the whole story. 80% of U.S. COVID fatalities have been people 65 years of age or older. That's amazing, isn't it? Again, 81% of COVID cases are 65, degree, 65 years or older. There's nothing unusual about this age profile. In fact, the different age group share of COVID deaths is strikingly familiar to their share of deaths, period. So he has this graph, right? And what the graph shows is that, right, COVID deaths relative to all causes from 2017 to 2019, and it tracks it like crazy. It tracks it like crazy, and it go by age group. So it's it's it, it's it's really an amazing statistic. Still, 
this age distribution is very different from some other things that kill us. Past influenza pandemics, for example, often exacted their worst toll among children or young adults. Wars are deadly for young adults for obvious reasons. I haven't been able to find data on deaths by age groups for past flu pandemics and major wars that match up well with what's available on COVID-19. But the Center for Disease Control and Prevention does provide spectacularly detailed data on deaths from every imaginable every imaginable cause since 1999, making it possible to compare COVID's toll by age with lots of other risks mentioned above. And so he goes on to compare it uh, to car accidents. Um, and then, but this is one of the things that, that I think is important about the article that I'll include in this hour post. The 12-month death toll will end up well over 500,000 if one counts from when deaths actually started taking off last March. Meanwhile, and, and this is important, skeptics have pointed to incidents of deaths from gunshots and auto accidents being attributed to COVID as evidence of a major overcount. State and local health officials subsequently removed most such cases from their data, but there were many tougher calls where COVID merely hastened the end of people who were dying of something else. So you're dying of cancer, you then get COVID, and so what's your cause of death? COVID or cancer? Well, I think that would depend on how we're being compensated. We're getting compensated at a higher rate for COVID treatments. This is COVID-related. Then again, data on excess deaths from all causes seem to indicate that, especially early in the pandemic, a lot of deaths probably caused by COVID were instead attributed to other things. And this is one of the things I like about the article, which is why I figured I should just stick with 500,000. It's a ballpark, and it simply and doesn't imply false precision, which I thought was reasonable, right? So anyway, half a million people killed by this thing. And he goes on to compare it to, to different things. So to me, the thing that's more important than the mask mandate is opening the state up for business. Yeah. It's being able to go into a restaurant, right, and eat, knowing that the estimate of that disease's spread in a restaurant is 1.5%. So what is it, what that should, in my opinion, what that tells us as grown-ups is if you have co- high comorbidity factors and you haven't been vac- vaccinated, you can't go to a restaurant. But it's important to the nation to get back to life. We cannot continue to live like this. It's not fair to people that are losing their livelihoods, their homes, everything they've ever worked for. So the question for governors is, I don't think it's a mask mandate, right? I don't think that's the single most important thing. I think it is opening up business. And now if, if governor's saying, you know, you can, you, we're doing these things simultaneously, then that's fine. But when you see the precipitous drop, that's right, the precipitous drop in cases across the nation, why are we still holding on to this? Because guys like Fauci, again, the next time Dr. Fauci's right will be the first time he's right. And again, the, the, the science of public health 
is squishy science at best. We've seen him be wrong, consistently be wrong. Nobody predicted that 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 cases of COVID across the nation would plunge by what seventy percent now. The last number I saw. And now you have people going on, you know, what two weeks ago when this first came out, saying, um, "Hey, we will have herd immunity in this country by April." You just had the president of the United States go on saying by May. Everybody, every adult in the United States will have a COVID vaccine available to them should they opt to do that. Um, and so now it's unmistakable. So the first people that said that, like, oh, that's too soon, that's too soon. Well, now people are saying, yeah, grudgingly, you know, there's no way that w- by May we're not going to have herd immunity in the country. So to me, the most important thing isn't the mask mandate. It's opening the nation up to do business. And um, and so I think that's important. I'll include this. I think it's an interesting read. The other thing, I was having a conversation about mental health this morning with somebody. And somebody said to me, you know, Mac, a lot of, you know, lawyers view you as kryptonite. And I found, I found that interesting. Because in, in the presentation, here's what I do. I tell the truth. You know, and things like you're not going to get over it. All the things I've learned, right, you've got to talk about it. Relative to mental health professionals, here's what I say. Use them. Know this. I don't know anybody who has an enduring relationship with one. Nobody. Has an enduring relationship with a the therapist. Now, if you're in the military, you know, you, you change duty stations. They There's turbulence in their ranks as well. So you tend to use them when you need them, and then you, you, you don't use them anymore. Relative to people who are civilians, they tend to use them as long as their insurance will pay for it. And when they've used up that benefit, then they, they stop going. Then they don't pay for it out of their pocket, something that my friends can't afford. Now, I'm sure there's richy riches that can. I just don't know them. Okay? So what do I advocate? I advocate to use them. I advocate to be frank with them. I advocate that mental health is not easy. It's a three-legged stool. They've got to get you. You've got to get them. And then together you have to make progress. And if those three stools, those three legs on the stool don't exist, then find somebody else. What what do I advocate about medication? Have a grown-up discussion about medication. Look Look at prescribing psychiatrist or doctor in the face and say, how long am I going to be on this? What are they going to do for me? And if you don't like the way they make you feel, take the bag of meds back, make another appointment, say, I'm not going to take these anymore. I hate the way I feel. Can you give me something else, lower doses, different meds, something else? Now, there's nothing in there that's going to get me sued. I know that. I've had lawyers, I've talked to lawyers about what I say. More responsible care is nothing that will get you sued. So so the kryptonite comment, why? Well, let me tell you how the system's set up. Grant Newsham's going to join us here in a few minutes, all right? So I, I will be quick with this. The system is designed to, give, to, to cover everybody's ass, okay? Does it provide good, good quality care? Well, all you have to do is look at the data. Look at the data. Since 2000, the number of suicides 
inside the DOD is up 150, pushing 200%. What does that tell you about, about the work that's been done? Yeah, it tells me it's not very good. Right? So, so these are very highly educated PhDs that provide this high-quality service that doesn't fucking work. Next, it's designed, in my opinion, to make a lot of money for pharmaceutical companies, a lot of money for therapists, and nobody's going to get sued. That's the system. As long as you exist in that system, it's all good. It's all good. But the question, does that system help? Is it helping? And the answer is a resounding fuck no, it doesn't. And all you have to do is go talk to young people who go use that system. They'll tell you what they think of it. But let me tell you, that doesn't get written about. It doesn't get published at all. At fucking all. And then McNamara shows up, and all of a sudden, in commands of over 10,000 Marines and sailors, suicide attempts go down 50%. Two commands, two separate years. And I'm working on getting all the data here. But that's what I've been told. And that motherfucker's kryptonite? Simple two-word response to that. Fuck you, man. If helping people is kryptonite, then load my dump truck up, motherfucker. So, anyway, (laughs) that got me fired up this morning. The United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. This is dedicated. It's dedicated to all the people that are part of a system that has seen suicide go up over a hundred and fifty percent. Shame on you.
betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Time for us to check the weather. <laughs> I'll read you a couple text messages. Mac, you need to settle the fuck down, alright? <laughs> And then the next sentence, I love when you click off safe and all you're doing is telling the truth. It's why you make a difference. God bless you, dude. Semper Fidelis. How do you look at those statistics and not be pissed and not know that we can do better? And let me tell you, suicide among people that don't have a serious mental illness is a leadership problem. That's what that is, straight up. Isolated, alone, and nobody gives a shit. And that's why they head down that road. That's just a fact. People can deny it all the fuck they want to. Doesn't change the fact. Okay, with that said, currently partly sunny in 47 in Quantico. Cloudy in 48 down the coast at Camp Lejeune. That's cold in North Carolina right now. Um, 29 Palms, sunny in 53. Pendleton, partly sunny, 49. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy in 70. Okinawa, dark cloudy, 64. Darwin's return to its balmy nights, dark cloudy in 82. Oslo's cooled off a little bit. It is partly sunny 
and 31 at the home of Auburn Radio. It is partly cloudy and 55, a 46% chance of rain through 9 o'clock. Let's see. Daily forecast. Looking for a high today at 57 degrees. And looking for a 99% chance of rain. 63 tomorrow, 69 on Friday, 62 on Saturday. What's up with the cold weather? <laughs> Not happy with that. Uh, also, some rockets got shot at Al-Assad. Yeah, so um, so kind of interesting given, uh, given the 60 Minutes report, blah, 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 blah. All right, let me get Grant Newsham on the phone. Grant's written a couple different pieces that we're going to talk about today. And um, so... Let me dial Grant up here on the other side of the planet. So, uh-oh, the submarine sound. Oh, the happy music. The submarine sound means he's not on. But that sound means he is, and he just answered. Just back from okay. the just back from the go go bars is Grant Newsham, which is his normal life pattern. Um, Grant, welcome back. How are you? Mm, fine, thanks. All right, all right. Okay. Fired up. Spring training started. It spares us from <laughs> watching the news. Yes. That's right. Yeah, I was down in uh, Vero Beach uh, just now, watching the Dodger Dodger Town. Well, <laughs> Dodger Town has historical Dodger town, an old air force base, um, that the Dodgers picked up for a song and a dance after the war. And, mm -hmm. uh, there you have it. Baseball history back there. You have any uh, predictions now that you're, uh, now that your Washington senators have won a world series this year, it's going to be the Baltimore Orioles turn. Oh my God. I'm telling you, just wait. The, um, <laughs> the um all right you have any uh a lot of stuff going on in the united states you have any uh you watch it from afar do you find uh being away from the country now and you look at it from uh, an external <laughs> perspective you know i remember um i remember you know when you're gone for a year right in iraq or afghanistan and you're just in this cacophony of shit right and um, you look back at the United States and you're like, what are you idiots even doing back there? Why would you be killing each other? You have everything life offers you. Everything is at your feet. You know, what Americans consider poor is by no way, shape, or form poor around the rest of the world. Right? Um, so I remember that being struck by that. Why are you killing each other? Just go get a job and... Go work for God's sake, and you can live the life you want to live. So anyway, I'm curious. Um, you look at your nation from afar. Um, are there any observations you have? Hmm. You know, I've always probably had the, the benefit of really not living within 5,000 miles of Washington, D.C., that you know, I don't get the full dose of the, the politics. Politics isn't quite the right word, uh, but this... This fight uh, between people who just have differing opinions about how a, a country should be run, but are citizens of the same country, 
but so I tend to so miss out on the, the the full dose of maliciousness uh, that you see generally from one side. Uh, so that's been um, something I've always sort of uh, preferred rather than being there. But it you you do get the impression uh, from wherever you watch it that uh, this is sort of a uh, a fight in which one side wants to win entirely and not just vanquish its opponents, but to destroy them. Uh, and that is troubling. I, I don't think I've seen that happen before. A view from afar. You know, that might become a regular feature when I have you on. Grant Newsham <laughs> joins us with a view from afar. Um, and then you'd be in some kind of exotic kind of samurai costume in a in a minaret. So it would be cross-cultural, right? Um, I think so. Yeah. And inclusive. Mm -hmm. So that would be, and that's important these days. And then you would be with a pair of very, very old-fashioned binoculars. A view from afar. Um, yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Is there Are there any current events that I should ask you about um, before we go to your articles? Can you talk to me about, I'm curious about Australia's culture war and diplomatic war with the Chinese. Um, and talk to me, how does that play out ultimately at the end of the day? And then I have a question about ASEAN very much in the news relative to, is it Myanmar or Myanmar? Uh, Myanmar. What's that? Myanmar. Myanmar. That's, Mi that's how mm -hmm. the... Oh, that was pretty good, yeah. Or Burma, <laughs> if you prefer. If you or Burma. Remember it the old day, yeah. All right. The All old right. way. So I want to I want to ask you about that because ASEAN comes up relative to that. They're having protests. But the question one, Australia v. China. How is that going? How does that end? You know, Australia is still sort of holding holding tough. And it's just a little background for people who don't live and breathe it is that until about three, four years ago, um, Australia uh, thought that it it had this wonderful relationship with China and China was going to buy all of Australia's iron ore and et cetera, and milk and other products, natural resources. And Australia was going to make a ton of money and they were. And China would be happy just to keep buying the stuff. And China was sending oh, several hundred thousand students to Australian universities a year, so a huge number. And they were all paying full tuition. And the universities were doing very well. And there were uh, Australian politicians and former officials, some serving, some not. And, and they, were all, they were on the Chinese payroll and everyone was making a ton of money. And then Australia wised up about three or four years ago and said that this is you know, making us subservient. It's putting us in a really a position where we cannot challenge the, the People's Republic of China. China was buying up you know, agricultural properties uh, and really strategic resources inside Australia. And in the Australian parliament, you had really guys who were getting paid by China to um, represent China's interests. And finally, Australia woke up and did something about it. They passed some serious laws, they exposed what was going on, and um, tried to put a stop to it. And China didn't like this. So China has, in the, the meantime, has put on economic sanctions uh, on Australia uh, that have hurt 
um, some of the uh, Australian businesses quite a lot, but it's really been a good wake-up call for them. And now China has been demanding Australia apologize, this and that, and all sorts of threats. And you know, part of this is driven by uh, the Australian um, Prime Minister. I'm calling, just calling for an investigation into the origins of the Wuhan virus. And the really set the, the Chinese off, but um, but so Australia is under this sort of verbal pressure, psychological pressure, economic pressure from uh, the Chinese, and it has to decide what it's going to do. You know, is it going to sort of acquiesce, or is it going to sort of keep standing up to the to the Chinese? And so far, they've kept standing up, and this seems to be something that the, both parties agree on. Um, so uh, mostly. Uh, so that's where we stand, and but it does depend on the United States getting its own act together uh, towards China, because uh, without the U.S., Australia would be uh, vulnerable in a number of ways. Um, so how does it play out? You know, my guess is that that uh, we will not, you know, and I hope I'm right that that the U.S. is going to more or less get the right approach to China, or at least certainly not, you know, sort of the the, the blind appeasement of the, the Obama era and preceding era, eras, Republican and Democrat, and that with that, Australia will um, act like Australians, at least the Australians that sort of you and I are familiar with uh, from that those days, that, that they will continue acting like Australians. And you know, I think one fairly says that Australia has showed uh, the rest of the world how to sort of wake up and deal with China. Uh, there is going to have to be um, some sort of uh, economic shift uh, in terms of Australian markets so that they sell their products elsewhere and not and are not so dependent on, on China as they were, uh, because it was about uh, 30% of Australian exports were going to uh, the People's Republic of China. And that's that makes you pretty dependent on things. So that's even more to Australia's credit that they've uh, woken up. Uh, one funny or uh, sort of telling uh, anecdote from this is, you know, the Marines are in Darwin uh, in northern Australia. Um, there was a Chinese company, and it, they're all connected to the Chinese government, that put in a bid to buy, basically buy the operating rights to Darwin Harbor, uh, the port of Darwin, and called, as I recall, it's called Landbridge, and the uh, they got approval for it. You know, so this is a Chinese company with government ties that has has basically bought the port at which are in the town where the Marines are going to operate. And this was, well, goodness, it was four or five years ago. And they did it with apparently the, the, the provincial government did it apparently without really any central government approval. And they just sort of did it. And by coincidence, there was one... Uh, a senior Australian official who, like the day after the deal was signed, almost retired and went to work for Landbridge thousand dollars a year. Uh, so that was something that that did wake up a lot of Australians who needed woken up. Uh, but they they still haven't taken the port back from the Chinese. But it gives you a sense of just how how bad the the dependence, the bribery, the corruption was. When it came to the PRC, now it's up to us to clean up our own house because uh, we could easily uh, see them and raise them one on that story. The um, <clears throat> all right, interesting, 
And and again, I think that the this is age old lesson of diversification, not a bad thing, right? Helps you in a lot of different ways, and it insulates you from anybody's having that kind of power over you, and also. Um, if something does go wrong in that part of the world, it, it, it insulates you from that, but you have to temper your own greed. And as the United States is learning, right, Wall Street will happily deliver a rules-based society to the Chinese for another two shekels, um, which is pretty pathetic. But I think um, some Americans at least are sensitive to that idea and, uh, and are looking, I know, I know, our past president was in terms of restricting pensions, uh, specifically government pensions, investing in China. And so, uh, so hopefully the world slowly but surely wakes up and, uh, and that. Talk to us about Burma. How do you pronounce Myanmar? Myanmar. 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 Yeah, and I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but they, I, I don't know. I'm, you the, tend I'm to at be... least in the ballpark. I'm at about its second base. And, Myanmar. Yeah. Well, it's pronounced, yeah. it's written M Y A N M A R. So if you look at them as me, as in me lie, right? As separate syllables, Myanmar, mm-hmm. I mean, it is that it is written. So, but what used to be known as Burma, right? So it's west of, uh, it's west of Thailand. It is east of India. Yay. Mm-hmm. And so, and what? Uh, southwest of China, blah, 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 blah. So, um, what's going on there? Can you give us a little thumbnail of what's going on? Sure. It, um, it's Burma has <laughs> always been run by a really corrupt, uh, sort of brutal um, military regime. Basically, the, the generals have run the show, like, Almost forever. Uh, and there, that doesn't mean that everyone likes it. Uh, so there was actually a, um, I, you know, the time sort of jumbles together, but about 10 years ago, uh, the sort of the, the, the opposition or the basic, which is basically a whole lot of people who don't like being run by sort of corrupt generals who are stealing everything and uh, have suppressed any sort of opposition or the sort of freedoms we would like uh, that they don't they didn't like it so the vast majority of people it seems because when they had uh, they accidentally had an election goodness that must have been 20 years ago it's sort of by accident that the opposition overwhelmingly won and that surprised the generals because they had sort of convinced themselves everybody loved them and so they can't the the election again, and then about ten years ago, as I as I recall, they you know, sort of under international pressure for whatever reason, uh, they uh, agreed to have another election, and this time when the opposition won, uh, that they allowed the opposition to take over. But the the way the rules were set for the, the governing the country, the general still had a veto power or could uh, protect their their interests. Um, and then it's so you had about 10 years of something like a, a democracy or consent representative government, but, you know, the kind we would recognize, uh, although the generals were always in the background and putting a sort of a lid on, you know, could have they had the, you know, their finger on the switch. And just uh, just recently, they, um, for whatever reason, I don't know why, maybe because I haven't followed it closely enough and I'm not sure anyone quite knows. 
uh, the generals sort of um, push the switch and uh, close down the government, close down parliament and took over again. So it was a coup. And this has led to a, you know, the, uh, a lot of mass protests throughout the country. And that is, so that's where we stand. That a, a military regime, the military regime, has taken over again in Burma, or Myanmar, and there's all sorts of political toing and froing uh, about this. Uh, the Chinese appear to have had some involvement in uh, sort of approving or encouraging or giving the the coup leaders, the, the generals, giving them the go ahead. And where that ties into sort of the strategic interests is that Burma uh, has a land border with uh, with China, and it potentially offers overland access to the Chinese to the the Bay of uh, the Bay of Bengal, and onward into the Indian Ocean. And that is something that China has always wanted, and they've been trying to get that access, uh, particularly via a pipeline, uh, for a long time. And it seems that you know maybe they've made some progress with this new regime uh, to actually sort of bring that to fruition. Uh, the Chinese are not popular with the, the really the bulk of the the, Myan, the Myanmarese population, uh, but they are popular with the generals. For you can figure out how that works. It's always money and changing hands and uh, sort of financial benefit. That's shocking. Um, That's shocking. Yeah, so that's kind of where we stand. There's there are internal issues in in uh, Myanmar where it is a tribal. They have uh, tribes uh, in addition to the what used to be called the Burmese. So you have uh, you know hill hill tribes who live in the rural areas, um, most many of whom were, were strong allies of the Americans and the British during World War Two. Um, and but so they've had a, the the tribes fighting the, the central government. Uh, made up of Burmese uh, for for we're having a bit of a those fights have been going on since the end of the very support to some of those uh, one at least one of those principal tracks to both sides both both angles. Uh, but that's uh, that's sort of Burma. It's uh, geography, geography-wise, it's really important. Um, and uh, but it's been a really you'd never. It was described once as a, a play, this was uh, before World War Two. It was was described once as a place where I was at a a virgin wouldn't walk around alone pushing a wheelbarrow full of gold. Um, it despite its image, it's always been kind of a rough place once you. Uh, get beyond the the smiling people with their palms together, um, sort of bowing. Uh, but that so, so that's uh, maybe a, a thumbnail sketch. So what you said, nobody rightly knows why the military um, grabbed um, power again. Um, Care to venture a guess? Is it yeah, is yeah. it the fact that it's just they can sell the rights to a road or to well, a pipeline? Yeah. I mean, that would that be enough to do it? Yeah. Well, they, they think maybe you know it doesn't quite know for sure unless the, the intelligence is there. But I think right. we can all guess why it happened is that these guys felt their interests were threatened, and it's always their financial interest. But also, if uh, a civilian government does get too out of hand, um, that they can 
bring these guys to trial and they stand to lose everything. Uh, so th that was obviously the reason is they did feel threatened, financial interests, personally, etc. Um, and it's been a huge problem for the, uh, the democratic government to deal with these guys in the background. Um, so that it's, it's, pre you know, it's predictable and I think it is understandable what happened, although as I haven't seen the um, sort of the, the, the document that proves right, it or right, the, the right. clear evidence, but that's you know, got to be the reason. Got it. All right. I want to uh, appreciate the uh, the current events update. Uh, I want to cut to um, a couple of things you've written. Uh, the first one uh, that I want to talk about is a. Uh, it's called. It's a. The headline is, Southeast Asia does not want to choose, but it may, but it may not have to. And it's talking about. Um, this we want to do business with china but we want to be protected by the united states uh first of all uh what's the origin of this uh what what spawns this in your brain um well it, it's hearing i think for the umpteenth time uh, scholars and even people or officials in south southeast asia uh, say those very words is we don't, don't want to choose between China or the Americans. And on the American side, you even hear lots of scholars and the, the commentariat saying America mustn't make these people choose uh, between us or China. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I would love to have my cake and eat it too. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's pretty silly. At some point you are going to have to choose, you know, when you have a, an aggressive expansionist totalitarian regime uh, like China uh, that is on the march and it, it wants to dominate and control uh, Southeast Asia, uh, that you can't expect the Americans to just sort of say, okay, you guys do all the business you want with China uh, and, and we'll be here to protect you. you know, how, how can that possibly continue and how could anybody think that that could, could possibly be a, uh, a long-term uh, approach to, to things in, in Asia? But you hear it over and over. And the Australians were even saying it uh, three or four years ago. You would hear Australian politicians saying the same thing. Well, we don't want to choose. You know, we, we you know, you know, we, um, the Americans can protect us and we'll keep doing business with China. That works great. Well, people in America may not, may not agree with that. <laughs> and, and so that's why I wrote the, wrote the piece. You know, I just heard it one more, one time too many uh, but, you know, the Americans are going to have to, you know, at some point make that choice. And, you know, it, that one day, if, if they don't make the right one, you can bet that at some point the Chinese are going to be in a position where they are going to come to the, the Southeast Asian nations, to ASEAN countries, and tell them, well, look, we don't want you to choose either. Um, so we'll take care of both your, your uh, economy, both your business and your security. Uh, so you don't even have to make the choice. So the Chinese just might make the choice for them if they're not careful. Uh, and yet we, we have not really gotten into this game, you know, as effectively as we should. Um, but the, say the Chinese are coming and, and will make that choice. And, and also that I don't think the ASEAN countries realize that once China does provide both uh, business and security, that China will decide exactly how much uh, money these countries make. You know, they will control how much economic benefit they get, uh, they have. 
and that isn't um, I think recognized. But it's you know it's a problem, and I'm not sure exactly how uh, how this is going uh, to play out. You know, and it, and it fits into the larger question of how how well we uh, can take on China and you know everywhere so it's it's not it's best not looked at in a vacuum as we we tend to do well it's interesting uh, that it's interesting that we you know we again you talk about nations that have gone that have gone down this path and in australia we talked about right at the uh, at the top of the segment which is all of a sudden you're looking around and this thing has its tentacles everywhere on me and the only thing it has to do is squeeze me a little bit to put me certainly out of office, right? And then to cripple us maybe as a nation economically for years until we do what we should have done years ago, which is which is diversify and not allow them to do this, or we can just say yes, which keeps me, right, which keeps me in power. And, you know, we've already signed the agreement to dance with the devil, and so we shall dance. Because it's just easier for everybody, and um, I want I want to read a little bit, um, uh, a couple something that you wrote. Um, how much security can the U.S. actually provide? Not as much as it used to. The United States Navy has about 300 ships to cover the globe, and it is growing only slowly. Meanwhile, China's People's Liberation Army Navy, the plan as it's known, has about 360 ships. Add in the Chinese Coast Guard, maritime militia, and the Chinese total exceeds 700. In plain language, the PLA is cranking out ships and shows no sign of slowing down. And then I'll skip down to this. Numbers also allow you to have a presence. And it is reaching the point that the PLA can have a lot more things, more places, more often than the Americans. By comparison, the U.S. forces are a migratory species that wanders through in small numbers periodically, even if infrequently. Meanwhile, the Chinese seem to be there always. To cite a couple of examples, the Chinese Coast Guard appears to be on permanent station in Malaysia's economic exclusion zone, and Chinese ships have been occupying the Philippines' Scarborough Shoals for a long time now. And then you talk about... um, the United States Navy dispatching a carrier group or two for a short-lived presence, and you liken that to cops cruising through uh, Times Square in the 1990s. Talk to me about the defense posture. And, you know, oftentimes the thing is fundamentally changed in front of you, and you don't really realize it. Um, Is America woke? to the Chinese military reality. And and I would even venture, I, I was reading something about, you know, future Marine Corps, right? And, um, and the guy talks about this Marine notion that they will exist inside the weapon exclusion zone of the Chinese. And, you know, he describes this as... A forlorn hope and historically if you're described as a forlorn hope right that was Pickett and Pettigrew right on day three at Gettysburg right that was the Confederacy's forlorn hope now that's not a good thing to be described as okay just for all of you who aren't really savvy to the the hybrid ways that hybrids discuss this shit 
Um, <laughs> and so, to me, I, I'd be curious about your thoughts. This notion that in small boats, Marines are going to somehow or other throw off the Chinese fishing fleet, the Chinese Coast Guard, the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea area, right? Um, I Do you buy that? Hmm. So that's a, that's a two-part question. Yeah. One is, yeah. are we woke to it? And the question is, you know, the Marine Corps strategy is these ships moving around in some form of stealth-like fashion. Well, to me, if I'm the Chinese, I know where those things are all the time. And I have a redundant capability to kill them, and I will, and that will happen that will happen before anything else happens. Your thoughts, sir? Hmm. Okay, I surrender. But, uh, <laughs> the uh, the first one first. The uh, we've got a problem in in Southeast Asia and also even East China Sea, which is sort of above the South China Sea, uh, sort of west. That's East China Sea is sort of west of Okinawa, if you think of it that way. Um, and but back to the South China Sea in Southeast Asia, uh, it's been obvious for I would say at least a decade, probably fifteen years is more like it that the the Chinese can put a whole lot more ships into that area than we can, and it, it's estimated that say for every ship the Americans can deploy into the South China Sea, if China wanted, they could put ten ships out for every one of ours. So do the math. Um, yeah, we can, uh, you know, we can send a carrier group down there too, even, and they can do exercises, and it looks impressive. But then once they've gone through, they're gone, and the Chinese just fill in, and the Chinese have a lot more ships down there, and that's just ships. You also have their aircraft, and that can operate from land bases or island bases in the South China Sea, and their land-based uh, missile capabilities as well. So they've. Um, you know, you kind of wonder, well, you don't have to wonder. It's pretty clear who has the advantage uh, down there, down in, down there. And you're, you're going to see eventually, and it's not going to be that long, the equivalent of Chinese mews, the, the mew arg, the, making, the, making the rounds. So just as it's the Americans who show up once or you know, twice a year, uh, you're going to see the Chinese uh, military presence, as I say, making the rounds in peacetime, making it clear that you know, these good, that they're there and they have an interest. And if they don't like what's going on, they're going to hurt somebody. So it's no longer going to be a case of the Americans showing up and putting on a show and everybody ooing and eyeing. And then the Americans go away. Uh, it's going to be the Chinese there with more of a presence more often uh, than and with all the psychological advantage and political advantage that comes of that. And that is, is where things are headed. If the Chinese get that uh, military, the naval base in Sihanoukville in Cambodia, uh, that's going to make things even easier for them. And it's going to give that the, the, that sense of dominance that comes when you're somewhere all the time uh, that we we don't haven't been able to match. You know, we've you know, we've been like the if you said this before, been like the Harlem Globetrotters you know, showing up, you know, once in a while, putting on a great show everybody likes. Uh, but then we go away, and it's not as if we've left the audience able to um, do Harlem Globetrotter tricks. Uh, but we've just so th that's what where we're headed um, uh, with the Chinese, unless somehow we wake up. And as as noted, this has been obvious for at least 15 years, I would say, maybe even longer. What's coming? 
and yet it was never taken seriously by America's civilian or military ruling classes, except with exceptions. And there have been sort of a number of exceptions, and they know who they are. Um, but then again, you know, they didn't weren't able to sort of save things. Uh, and you just case in point here, you have the the littoral combat ship. You know that the, this was built with the idea of uh, really a constabulary force that was going to fight anybody except the Chinese, but it would be enough to efficiently sort of represent our interests in Southeast Asia. Um, the littoral combat ship cannot take a hit. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese just must be la- rolling on the ground laughing, you know, at the, the idea of that this was the, the LCS is going to be uh, the thing that holds them off. Uh, but that, but the, it was a, a program that took on a life of its own. And there were, of course, legions of merits all around for the people involved in it. And yet uh, it was exactly the wrong thing to produce and to um, blow a ton of money on. Uh, instead of getting ready to be able to fight the Chinese in a naval battle uh, and beyond, uh, we were building littoral combat ships. So now the, the second part of the question is the, the commandant's plan. And like you, I'm, I'm starting to have more mi- misgivings than than I did at, at one point. And I have a, a feeling it's over-specializing on one particular sort of fight, and it does depend on uh, the... The Chinese cooperating, and you, you did mention that that idea of, and this is one of the, the the big issues is, if the idea calls for putting small groups of Marines here and there around the region, arming them with long range weapons, and and sort of deterring the Chinese that way, um, that it's going to have to first figure out where to put these people, and then how to keep them hidden, uh, and you know you can. Hey, Grant, but she, you, and, and you and I would both concede. Ships are the poorest way to hide anybody, and so you and I have spoken. The significance you look at the the geography of the region, the significance of the Philippines, right? The significance of Vietnam. Have we negotiated treaties that allow our forces to go armed into those things to set up different bases to be able to move to be able to be formidable in the region? The answer to that is no. And so, to me, if 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 we think we're going to hide. From the, if we don't think the, the Chinese are going to evolve the quote-unquote fishing fleet with faster engines, with better communications so they can track these boats, you're crazy. You're absolutely out of your mind. So, so again, inside the weapons exclusion zone, which is, is what the United States postulates, um, I, I, don't, I don't see how something that obvious as a ship designed to carry 100 Marines. So we're not talking about a, a, a rigid raider, right? We're talking about a ship escapes detection, especially when we're looking for them, right? We are hunting them as the Chinese. So I, I, I um, yeah. I, I, yeah, some, I, yeah, I would, someone would need to explain how this is going to work to me because I, I don't get it. You know, I, and the, you know, if you think, you know, the Chinese say they make, uh, 200 groups of 50 people, 50 guys each, and they spread them out, just send them out into the region uh, to find the the Americans. And the Americans do stand out. You know, I'm not quite sure how we're going to sort of remain undetected. Uh, the, 
So I say I'm just I, if someone's got an answer for it, I'd like to hear it. But what we have done is the there really has been dereliction of duty uh, in a number of places that we do not have places to put these Marines. Right. We don't have the agreements, the relationships, etc. Right. Uh, that this could have been done at a very low cost over the last uh, decade or longer. And it just hasn't been done. And this is, you know, is missing just a huge piece of the puzzle. And once again, legions of merit all around uh, everyone involved. Uh, and we're, you can see how we are in a, in a fix. Um, it, it, it's worth noting, of course, that the there is a, a difference between peacetime operations and what happened in actual wartime uh, events. And that you do things in peacetime that are done uh, really to build, build that, you call it the connections that you need with other countries in the region, the, the, establish the, the confidence on their part in us, and also to deter the, the bad guys. Um, and so there are things that you do in peacetime you wouldn't do in wartime that because uh, you wouldn't survive, but they are equally important. And if you do them right in peacetime, it can uh, sort of prevent having to actually fight. But the so there's two sort of aspects of this um, of when thinking about it because that that I find it helpful to keep that that in mind you know for example sending the mew around um, it's a good thing it'd be nice if there were three mews out there doing things but you just think you do to build confidence that people have that you are there uh, and that you will be there if if things get tough and it it so it gives them the backbone to actually if they need to make a choice between China or the U.S. to uh, think about us. Um, but the, the just say throwing that out, but the, there's, so there are some things. About, I do have a, a feeling that the, the shift in the Marine Corps is giving up too much capability uh, and you know, in the, the expectation that the trouble we have coming is going to appear in a certain particular form that we would like it to. Uh, so I have a, a little concern. And as you've noted, you know, exactly where do you put these people and how do you keep them hidden? Uh, that uh, I, particularly as surveillance technology, satellite technology um, improves. Um, and, and, and also, just, and also yeah. right, unmanned naval systems, right? So, so if, if you're the Chinese and you're watching the evolution of, of the Marine Corps, right, and, and in Marine Corps planning, Right there's these these games we play, and it's called action, reaction, counteraction. So, the Marine Corps, you know, divests itself. It's in the region in these small in these smaller craft, and we have littoral regiments, right? And they have missiles, right? Okay, so as the Chinese, right, the Marines, um, they're gonna be, you know, at sea. Okay, so what is our counteraction? Our counteraction is for every one of those ships. We have four or five, right, or six, and and there were or nine, and they work starboard and port, and their job is location, right. And then in in addition to that, we have drones that follow these things all the time, and when we use them, and then we throw them away, we don't care, but we will know where these ships are all the time, and they will be destroyed at the commencement. They will be the first things destroyed because they're out there, and so to me. I mean, I don't, and again, I don't know anything that, is there a way that we could now make these ships invisible? Do we have that kind of technology? Is there a way that we can, you know, obliterate the Chinese Coast Guard and the Chinese Navy from the region? Uh, you know, when, I don't know if we can do that stuff. 
But if you can't and you don't have a land agreement with the Philippines, you don't have a land agreement with the Vietnamese, you don't have a land agreement with the Malaysians where you can get ashore. And then once you're ashore, you can harden yourself. You can have multiple positions. You can move, you know, pretty much undetected. If you can't do that, then to me, again, I, I, and that's the Marine Corps hypothesis, we will be inside the weapon exclusion zone and will be invisible. So I don't, I, I, I struggle with the concept. And then, and there's, I think, I think the other thing that people struggle with that I've, I've spoken to is, is, you know, their, their argument. And, 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 and General Berger's pushback might be, yeah, well, they don't know the finances of the Marine Corps. The pushback of tube artillery and tanks to the 4th Marine Division, we don't need a 4th capability, you know, to augment the other three that's a, a mirror image that goes back to World War II. We need complementary things in the reserves that we could pull out and use, depending on where we land in, on the spectrum of, it's called the range of military operations, ROMO. Right, so the fight in Africa is going to be different than the fight in the South China Sea. The fight in North Korea on the Korean Peninsula will be different. The fight, you know, if we go back to the Middle East, will be different as well. Have you factored yourself out of that by the way you've configured yourself for what you perceive to be is is maybe, you know, the high end fight, but the least probable fight you will fight. And so there's that question as well. And I'm not, I don't have a high enough clearance to understand a lot of this stuff. But relative to the South China Sea, man, if you can't make those ships invincible, I don't know how they survive. No, I've, I don't either. We're going the, um, you know, we, we at least know the, the problems and what needs uh, solved. And I'm hoping that somebody, uh, somebody's working on it. You know, it's, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Um, the, uh, in terms of getting ahead of the budget and sort of doing everyone a favor by tightening our belts, I mean, if there's one thing that I'm sure of after some years in both government and the private sector is that when you, uh, try to economize on behalf of the larger, the larger organization, nobody cares. And I mean, nobody cares. I would prefer that we were actually uh, developing and maintaining what we need and then, forcing somebody else to tell us uh, they're not going to pay for it and make that case to the American public. Um, but as I say, nobody cares if you're saving, uh, saving money and trying to anticipate, uh, you know, to, budgets is a fool's errand to my way of thinking. Um, but, you know, we'll see. But, you know, say you've highlighted, I think, some of the, certainly for Asia, some of the, the main problems. And, um, you know, the, and the, these, the, the, the plan, I think, was very poorly rolled out um, and with a sense that, well, we wargamed it. You don't know what you're talking about, so shut up. Uh, when very legitimate concerns that have been raised uh, have just been dismissed, um, generally with a roll of the eyes, that is pretty much offensive. So I uh, say I have more concerns about this than I did when I first uh, heard about it. Because um, I, I thought it was a good way to get away from our standard approach to things, and it would be a nice uh, addition uh, to the way the capabilities Marines have and the way we operate. Um, but uh, as I say, I'm having uh, some concerns, and you know, we'll see how this plays out. Got it. Got it. No, I'm with you. And, and, and look, I'm open to be convinced. I don't know how you turn those things invisible, though, and I think that's problematic. Um, I want to read something else that you wrote. 
um, no Southeast Asian military can take on the PLA, either individually or collectively. Southeast Asian nations with territorial claims and economic resources in what they believe are their own economic exclusion zones can probably sense the future with China. Send out survey ships and the Chinese ships shadow and harass. Set up oil drilling rigs and the Chinese ships shadow and harass. Send fishing boats where, when, and the Chinese do not allow, you're lucky just to be harassed rather than to disappear. Send out the Navy and Coast Guard to protect the aforementioned, asking for trouble, especially now that China recently passed a law authorizing the Chinese Coast Guard to shoot at, quote-unquote, lawbreakers in Chinese territory, which, by Chinese reckoning, is nearly all the South China Sea and anywhere else China says it owns. One might easily despair. Grant, right, king of the understatement, all right? Um... And my favorite, cautiously pessimistic. Um, that doesn't paint a very uh, pretty picture of of what ASEAN deals with on a regular basis. No, they, they don't. They, they we, Singapore is probably the best of them, and, and even they would just give the Chinese a sort of a, a short interruption. Uh, they, you know, and once again, the, this is a, a problem that's exist, an issue that's existed for a long time, and. I, hasn't really been addressed the way it could have been. Uh, ASEAN is a, a tough, it's sort of a fractious group of countries, and it's never lived up to the the expectations, I'd say, that Western commentariat has had for it. Um, but they, so individually or collectively, it's hard to see them uh, putting up much of a military fight. And, you know, they, they are, if the Americans are their only option, uh, if you play it out, say a decade or so that and i'm not sure if we have the, the capability or the nerve to uh, uh bolster them uh, you know there, there are within us within the southeast asian nations some of them are more serious than others because you you have for example uh, cambodia and laos which are pretty much in china's pocket um, myanmar's leaning towards china thailand's still sort of a friend but they've shifted towards china uh, Singapore is starting to waver, which is not a good sign because they've always been considered the sort of pro-America, even if quietly, uh, country. Um, and so in Indonesia is always a tough lot to deal with anyway, but um, there's a limit to what they can do. Uh, so, you know, I haven't covered everything, but they, so the, the point is that we've, you know, the, the ASEAN is... Um, in play, it's not just in play, it may be just gradually shifting towards uh, towards alignment with China, even if it doesn't want to or can't help it. And you do have within the elite classes down there, that's where the Chinese subversion and uh, has been most effective, right. uh, but not so much uh, in the populace writ large, because the populations in throughout Southeast Asia don't care much for the, the Chinese. Uh, so there is a, there's there's things we can work with, uh, and you know, there is things ways we could figure uh, improve things if we go about it the right way. All right, let me you write this. Everyone knows the South China Sea is important, but maybe the solution will not be found there. And then you write a little something. Then you say this. This suggests China is vulnerable elsewhere. Can you elaborate? Um, yeah, you know, we, we talk so much about a sort of a fight down in the South China Sea, which really is China's home turf. Right. 
So you have all the difficulties that come of playing in the other guy's ballpark. But, you know, suppose you allowed the fans to actually bring guns, that would be even worse. Um, but that, so, but things don't happen in a vacuum. So trouble in the South China Sea, or if you want to prevent it, um, you can make the cost of China doing something in the South China Sea so high elsewhere that it might forestall them. You know, one obvious way is to um, cut off the flow of U.S. dollars to China if they cause trouble in the South China Sea. And explain, uh, that, e- explain why that's an issue. Well, the Chinese currency is worth what Confederate money was worth during the American Civil War, which is like nothing. Um, nobody wants it. And so that China depends on having U.S. dollars or Japanese yen or euros or something convertible. Uh, a convertible means a, it's a currency that you can take somewhere else and somebody will accept it. People will not accept the Chinese currency. So China has to earn or obtain convertible currency, principally U.S. dollars. So if America cuts those off, China doesn't have the money it needs for all the things it has to buy overseas or all the things it wants to do overseas. So if it wants to buy Australian iron ore, it has to pay in dollars. Um, It doesn't have those. If it wants to buy technology that it needs for its economy and for its military, um, it doesn't have the money to buy those things. So that's one huge vulnerability that China faces. Um, Also, China's ruling class has moved huge amounts of their own money illegally out of China and parked it in uh, New York City, Los Angeles, London, Singapore, etc., and bought up real estate. Um, And they've always tried to get family members with green cards, residence permits uh, in these places, establishing sort of an escape, a place to go to escape from China if things go bad. So all of this personal wealth and sort of people that they've actually, the, the ruling elite in China has managed to put overseas somewhere safe, they think, that is vulnerable. So threaten that or seize it. Or And if China causes trouble in the South China Sea, and you just might uh, make them pause. Um, additionally, the threat of uh, shutting down trade with China um, in the event of difficulty in the South China Sea is another, or, or Southeast Asia, is another um lever that we have. So what you can see is you're applying pressure elsewhere that causes uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party trouble um, if they do something sort of closer to their own territory. That, that in a, if it, but if we were to take them on just directly in the South China Sea or down that ways, it would be a, a more difficult thing um, for us to do just in a straight military to military shoot up, which is really what we'd would, would do well to avoid. So I wish we would play these le- other, use these other levers that we have um, over China. And, and say, so the, the line is that the, the solution to the South China Sea is probably not going to be found in the South China Sea uh, for us. So it's, uh, you know, war is politics by other means. And so these other ne- means would, you know, include the, the great card that the United States owns and that the free powers of the world owns, which is the power of commerce, the power of finance. Yeah, you know, if they do something, if China does something, okay, then every ship you have on the high seas is either going to be seized or sunk. So all of this, you know, these manufactured goods that you're getting rich from uh, selling everywhere around the world, okay, well, it's gone. You know, if if you want to trade the South China Sea for that, 
have at it. But it takes a certain nerve and sort of cold-bloodedness at, at the American leadership level. And I don't know that we've ever had that. Right. Um, we came closer, sort of, in the, the last administration. Uh, but I, as I say, it's, it always surprised me because it's really just Chicago politics at the national level. And we you'd think the Obama administration would have known something about that, and they didn't. <laughs> Well, no, but again, it was, you know, we're too busy, you know, um, facilitating Wall Street's giveaway, you know, and and enabling their greed uh, in this kind of even the Democrats who, you know, who are, uh, you know, who, you know, President Obama with his agenda. Right. There are no strangers to enabling Wall Street to do business with the devil and uh, and they can rail on Wall Street all they want, but they're fast friends. Hillary Clinton, you know, most notably, right, would, you know, she'd head to Wall Street and, you know, no, nothing, nobody would be allowed to cover the events. Nothing would come out of the events. And, and it was her assurances that, hey, nothing's going to change, boys. You'll still be able to do business in China. I won't upset the apple cart and I need your support. And that's the game we play as Americans. And, uh, and I, I think it's most distressing to think that, that, Wall Street will be the enabler of of China's power, right? And and I can't imagine it must be as they sit and smoke, right, and plan, right. And I have this movie in my head, right? These Chinese men sitting in a room with white shirts and their ties loose and smoking cigarettes, okay, and saying the beauty of this is that that Western greed will enable all of this. Right. Here's what we have to create domestically. And because of our population size, because of the amount of money that can be made by those companies here, we will compel them to one, give us their technology. And they will. We will compel them to to uh, allow us to do whatever we want internationally. Right. Because we will pinch their access to this gigantic market. And then as our economy grows, they will fund it. And they will ultimately deliver a rules-based order to us, and we will then be the dominant power in the world, and we will call the shots. It's you can imagine sitting, them sitting back in their in their in their in their like uh, swivel chairs, right, blowing smoke rings in the air, saying, "What a beautiful vision this is." But that's reality, Grant. Yes. Yeah, you know, you, you wish it wasn't, but and we talk about. You know, Wall Street and our financial and business classes role in propping up, uh, not just propping up the Chinese Communist Party, but allowing it to expand into something pretty scary. Uh, and that it does come down to that uh, at the end of the day. And it has been a bipartisan achievement. Uh, there's been Republicans who backed this and backed it as well uh, as Democrats. Uh, and it, it's not all that hard to figure out. One of the old Russian uh, guys, I forget, which one? It wasn't Lenin, though it's often attributed to him, uh, said uh, that the, oh, the the capitalist will sell us the, the rope with which we hang them. And this was way back when. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, some days you think it certainly seems that way, uh, unless we wise up uh, quickly. Uh, so yeah, and then the question will be, do you, do you wise up too late? You know, just as a kind of aside, you know, I saw a picture of, of Mikhail Gorbachev yesterday, I think, was his birthday. Mm -hmm. He turned 90. He's still alive. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. neither did I. And I, I, 
I thought I thought the, the when I saw the picture I thought oh he must have passed away I didn't know he was still alive but do you, maybe one of the most courageous politicians I've seen in my lifetime Mikhail Gorbachev in a way you know you you can't argue with you know when you you look into him he was kind of a communist still is but right. at the same time you know he could have done things very differently Boris Yeltsin was more my guy. He was more of a clubber. <laughs> you know, he was a, a go-go bar kind of guy. But the, uh, the uh, <laughs> no. but yeah, hey, he, he, without he a doubt, right? I still yeah, remember um, the pictures of him standing up on the tank giving speeches, right? And and Yeltsin would say crazy shit, and then he would say, "Yeah, I would think I was drunk at the time," right? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but I think I Yeltsin. Yeah, so Yeltsin was was more my guy. But the but. <laughs> But Gorbachev, it, no question about it. You know, you, you look at where he came from, look at the, the kind of guy he was, that he could just as easily have dug in his heels and right. uh, killed millions um, of his own people and people in the, the Soviet bloc if he had had a mind to, but he kind of let it go. And that is something that, you know, he deserves, I think, a lot of credit for. Wow. And do you remember the tank? Remember the, the video of the tanks firing into that building? What building? Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was. Building in Moscow. And there's like, I think it was T-72 tanks, man. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah, I think it was the, the KG. It was like an intelligence service headquarters or something was like it? that. But Holy it was, shit. yeah, it was definitely, uh, those were stirring times. Yeah. And, and know, again, I, wish I we think hadn't squandered it. Yeah, uh, set off by you know Mikhail Gorbachev and his courage. Uh, the other thing I want I want to get to uh, the fall of Taiwan. Asia goes red, or at least pinkens. Um, uh, dated February twenty third, and uh, a report for the Center of Security Policy. Uh, and uh, Grant is what is your official title with them, Grant? Senior fellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? That August title and mm-hmm. published on February 23rd, which is a notable day in Marine Corps history when the flag goes up, when both flags go up on Mount Suribachi. Um, uh, have you ever been to Iwo Jima? I have. I've actually been there twice. I hate guys like you. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> it, it's pretty good. It's, I, but the, I'll just throw in very quickly. I went there once. As with a group of Japanese, the that's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Had you gone I went with, with them? With the Japanese, which was, if you think of the irony there, that they, they asked that a Marine go with them, and I was, was uh, available and went with them. And it was uh, a memorable uh, event. So, what did you, when you were with them, where did you go? What did you do? Um, there's a, down on the, the, bot, the southern end, uh, the, the bottom end of the island, right. uh, there's a memorial to the Japanese. Who were killed, and they had that's where they had a, their ceremony there. And um, I so I was participated in it. And then they took a little tour of the island and went up, I think, down into one of the caves and then up to the up the mountain. Um, and uh, also with us was a, a fellow named John Rich, who was a he was a retired NBC correspondent who'd been in Asia for many years and I'm sure you've heard his name because yes. that was familiar to me and he was back when foreign correspondent meant something right. um, and uh, not some pretty boy with a you know a journalism degree from Columbia but uh, but John Rich had actually um, uh, he, he had uh, been on he, he had been he was on he was in the fourth wave oh no kidding. and 
and he was there actually as a Japanese as an interpreter because he was a, a language you know he had learned Japanese. He said he had landed with his dictionaries, and he said he never used them. <laughs> um, but uh, but when we got to, and he was a re- one of these really interesting, nice guys, and he was close to ninety, but you thought he was at least seventy. And uh, but I remember at the top of the the mountain, I heard him say he was talking to his daughter who was with him, and I heard him say, you know, and I don't know how I lived, and. It was very interesting to hear that, but you know, for, for you know the liberal arts major like me, you know, to get to be around John Rich is, was pretty good. Um, but you, it, it's worth going to. It sort of struck me that you know it's like the Alamo, it might be to Texans or something. But even then, some. Um, but it was very interesting to go with the Japanese, and and I say I thought it was very nice. It's a good sort of evidence of just how people can go from wanting to exterminate each other to actually being friends. And, you know, not that the history is forgotten, but it, that was one of the things that, that I thought was, was very nice that they had wanted a Marine to come, uh, come down with them. Um, well, so. and, they, and they wouldn't ask just uh, any jackass to go with them. You would have to be a, well, fa- well, they found one, a fairly <laughs> special jackass to go with them. Um, I, let me ask you again. It's, I've, I've been doing pro- content about Iwo Jima. And uh, I had Kyle Gentry on last week, and and Kyle sat on all three boards, both Hewley boards and then the Bowers board, and kind of we we had this liberal arts discussion about the three different boards and and some of the, the fascinating moments that he experienced. Um, um, he tells this wonderful, wonderful story about um, as they're going through and and now they've they've had the first Hewley board and Bradley's out. And uh, and then General Neller says, okay, I want you guys to reconvene and get to the bottom of the first flag raising so we can put this thing to bed, thing to, this thing to bed as well. And then more evidence comes out. And I remember interviewing the Irish amateur historian and kind of what I thought was an interview that would put a bow on the whole thing. And towards the end of the interview, he says, I said, so what's next for you? And he says, well, Mac, in his Irish accent, he said, this story isn't done. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I can't say anything else. There's more to come. And I said, in terms of, like, other people being re-identified? And he said, no comment. And I said, holy shit. And then, you know, so then Gagnon, the only guy who says, I was in that picture ultimately is out of the picture, right? And this, another guy, Harold Schultz goes in it, you know, for Doc Bradley, right? And then this guy, Harold Pike Keller, right? Who never says a word about it when he comes home. He goes into the picture. And so through the course of the research, um, this this Marine Massard, female type, she, I think she retired, she discovers that Richard Wheeler, who was a member of 2nd Battalion, 28th Marine Regiment, whose Marines went up the, the hill that day, um, mountain that day, um, he's dead, but he's a prolific writer, and his sister is still alive, living in Pennsylvania. They contact her, and Kyle Gentry gets his phone number of this woman, and this master tells him he lived with her before his death, 
His bedroom's still the same. All his papers in the basement. So Kyle contacts her, goes up there. He finds recordings that Harold Pie Keller, you know, made to, for Dick Wheeler about his time on Iwo Jima. And so he goes up there and he actually finds the cassette. They restore it. And he tells a story about giving it to his daughter, Keller's daughter, and her hearing her father's voice talking about that. Just these really, really, really cool things. And so I, I'd be curious to know, Grant, I mean, you're, you've been around the Japanese culture so much. You've been in that part of the world so, for so long. When you look at Iwo Jima, you know, uh, what do you see? You know, are there things that jump out at you that you see given your immersion in the culture and, and your perspective from, from that part of the world? Hmm. You know, it's the, I hadn't, I, I'm not a deep thinker, so I hadn't thought of that, but the, um, uh, you know, but the whole World War II experience and, and, you know, is just, it's what was such, so horrific for the Japanese that, you know, it's hard to, it's kind of a little hard for some of, at least for me to kind of quite grasp because they, you know, in Iwo Jima, you, you what were they, like 500 people survived, Japanese survivors, almost all of those wounded. Um, you know, every, you know, everyone talked about fighting to the last man, but the Japanese did it, you know, all over the place. And it, it's hard for us to quite grasp the, the sort of the, the suffering, you know, the, one might say it wasn't entirely undeserved. Um, but as I say, the, on a personal level where so many people were, you know, were killed, you know, so many Japanese were killed. And if you, you know, that it, it affected nearly everyone. And, you know, every family has just about has relatives who were killed, often a lot more of them. But the the experience of that war was so searing on them that it does make uh, you kind of understand why the you know, why their sort of post-war defense policies or whatever their attitude towards war fighting is what it is. Um, and, it, you know, it, you can't quite just say, well, get over it. But um, I would say the scale of the, the sort of the, the loss or the, the death on the Japanese side. And, and Iwo Jima seems to kind of encapsulate that where, you know, they all died. They knew they were going to and they they. They did, and that seems to be, I think, part of the attract. Attraction isn't quite the right word, but the significance um, is that uh, the the Japanese, you know, just it was something that every single sort of family sort of experienced or had some connection to it. But Iwo, so Iwo Jima is um, like that, and I don't know if there's an aspect of you know, the, like we consider the guys at the Alamo. I'm not sure if the Japanese look at it that way as well. Um, I just don't know. But the sort of the, the thoroughgoing savagery of it, um, and 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 how they unearth the Amer the Marines won, I have no idea. You know, really a tough uh, a tough one. And no, you know, they, it's, it, we were talking interesting. You know, General Kurbyashi is is probably the most formidable commander. You know, in the Pacific, and it, it's interesting. I don't know that there was any kind of exchange of ideas between the commanders on the islands, but but as the Marines go ashore, 
they're going to fight a different fight than they understand that they're going to fight in the early days, even as the flags go up on, on Iwo Jima, you know, um, the, the fight is going to be very different, you know, and you, you see so often in the literature of Iwo Jima, you know, I fought on that place for 34 days and I never saw a Japanese that wasn't dead, that we hadn't been drunk out of a cave. They simply were not above ground. And, and I mean, that little bit of brilliance and uh, and then the marine experiences on Okinawa as well, I mean, lend themselves to a very quick decision, you know, to drop the atomic bomb. If that's yeah. what it's going to be as mm -hmm. we get close, if this is what it's going to be like, then um, very interesting, uh, very interesting. But it's, it's interesting that, that as the Marines go ashore, they have no idea what's coming and this fight is going to be absolutely brutal. And I, if you if you click through the maps, you can find maps by day, and they're kind of color. It, it's they're they're the maps out of uh, the World War II literature that the Marine Corps wrote, the after action reports, and they're they're kind of a a aqua, a light aqua blue and yellow, and it and I think the yellow is where the Marines are on the island, and it goes day by day. And one of the things you notice is. The 4th Marine Division lands on the right-hand side as you're looking at the beach with the water to your back. Mount Suribachi is on your left. 5th Marine Division on the left, 4th Marine Division on the right. The 4th Marine Division goes literally nowhere for days. They, they, they come in, they face the right, and they have right the amphitheater, turkey knob, the meat grinder. And you literally, they measure their, their, their advances in yards. And you're looking at this, and it's the Japanese tunnel system honeycomb throughout that island and their ability to move and reinforce and do things they did at night um, to move people and whatnot, and just amazing, just absolutely amazing. So, so I, I find it, you know, um, a fascinating battle to study for a lot of different reasons. But, but I'm, and I'm certainly jealous of the fact that you were able to go there and, and, and with the Japanese, which must have been crazy. Must be, no, it was yeah. Well, the, the last story. The, the second time I went, it was for a ceremony, another ceremony, and uh, the uh, the Japanese Prime Minister was there, Ooh. Koizumi, and they had the ceremony. It was in a very small, narrow, sort of confined space where the monument was, and everyone had to stand in there. And I found myself standing right behind Koizumi, like I mean, six inches, my head to the back of his sort of. A sort of handsome white mane, and I was. It was really hot there, and, and I was so close that I remember thinking, "Man, I wonder what he smells like." <laughs> and uh, so I sort of moved my nose ahead a little bit, and and he had no aroma at all, none. None. You know, whereas with us, we'd smell like guys from West Virginia, and uh, but. No, he had none at all. So I can at least, if that is one thing I learned from that visit to Iwo Jima. <laughs> he, he wears no cologne. The, he had um... no aroma at all. He, maybe even was a robot. I don't know. <sighs> and I've even got a picture of it because I had my camera in my hand. And I sort of held up right into his mane. And I have a picture of nothing but white white hair. <laughs> And uh, I'm sure the, the, the guards were probably about to shoot me. For exactly. But, my but rem I, my I, remembrance exactly of that day. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Talk mm -hmm. to me about um, this kind of uh, piece about uh, the fall of Taiwan, um, the implications for that. So first of all, what is the impetus of that article? Um, well, I wrote it um, 
of course, I always get the idea from somebody else, but a right. uh, long time ago I'd gotten it. But the um, what I thought figured out was that when people talk about Taiwan and what's going to happen, most of the discussion looks at before and during. And by before, I mean, you know, will China attack? Could they attack? Would they succeed? And then some of the discussion goes into how a, a fight actually might play out. But very little discussion or focus goes on what happens afterwards. You know, it says if China does succeed in taking Taiwan, and taking them could be by assault or it could be just by, you know, bullying them into giving up um, without fighting. And but regardless, if and my so my piece is about what happens if that if that happens. And I look at particularly how will the political alignments in Asia develop if Taiwan falls. And I conclude that most of Asia would turn either red or pink. And by that, it means um, would would go to China. And you go down, and I go down the list and the just everywhere, even I think South Korea would go, would turn pink, uh, would shift towards China and away from us. Uh, down in Southeast Asia, everywhere, even Singapore would go pink, uh, Indonesia pink. The only thing we would have, and in Central Pacific and uh, South Pacific, um, that's very much in doubt. You know, that you know, the Chinese political warfare down there has been so thoroughgoing for three decades that those places too, you know, could easily sort of become pinkish. Um, but what America just might find itself left with um, is really having Japan, although their confidence in us is shaken, and Australia, and once again, confidence shaken as well. So you're trying to cobble together a defense line from Japan down through Guam, Saipan, maybe the Central Pacific states that that will let us, and then down to Australia. So you're not really able to operate um, west into the, you know, sort of into Southeast Asia, or even into uh, towards the, the Chinese mainland. It, and that would be just a political shift which would take place as a result of um, Taiwan falling. And the thing to remember is that, you know, consider what what message that would tell, that would, would send to every country in Asia, if not around the world, if Taiwan comes under Chinese domination. And that is one, that America could not prevent it the American military couldn't, American nuclear weapons couldn't, uh, the threat of U.S. financial and economic sanctions couldn't stop the Chinese. And if the Americans can't do it, who can? And you would see in the region, many nations scrambling to cut the best deal they can with China. And you may see this even reflected in, in Africa, Latin America, uh, and elsewhere. And that's what I, my article is about. It's really long. It was supposed to be just 1,200 words, but it, and at 7,200, I was still going Whoa! strong. Um, but the, so you'd take it like into the head with, instead of the LA, Sunday LA Times. And, <laughs> you know, that would do the job. Um, or the Washington Post. But the, uh, but the, so that's what, my, what I'm, I'm on about. And it's, it's surprising it doesn't get more attention. And I say this would be the effect, even if China... Um, if it goes without, or Taiwan goes under without fighting, um, that the political shifts would be immense and not in our favor. Wow. The um, <clears throat> have you got have you got much feedback on that? 
Um, some of it I've heard from some people whose opinions I, you know, if, if I, I do value who, you know, say it's a good piece. Um, the, so that's, it's pretty good. I don't tend to hear from people who don't like what I write, but they, uh, but they say the people who weighed in are the people who, you know, I would listen to. Well, let me tell you, uh, there's, so, a, there's a yeah. great map of East Asia in there, just for, for all you. <clears throat> if you're a mapophile, um, oh, with, yeah. there's, a great, yeah, there, there, there's a great map in there. Um, yeah, without the map, you can't <laughs> understand it all. You know what? Um, and again, without, I would tell you, without an annotated map, you can't understand it as well. And I mean, I, I have kept, based on our conversations, Grant, I have a whole series of slides that I've kept in a PowerPoint presentation that I have open that supports the show. And I'll just, um, I'll give you, I'll give, I'll give you just a, a few of them. Here's one that I keep. And it's uh, from a German Lutheran pastor. They came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. They, they then came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. They, then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me. And by that time, no one was left to speak up. The guy's name is Martin Niemöller. Gave the speech in like 1946, 47, 48 in the Munich region of Bavaria, if I'm not mistaken. And, but there was no, nobody recording it. People just remembered it. And then later on, he was asked to recount that. So um, anyhow, um, that's one of the things in there. I also have uh, diagrams of the uh, of Task Force um, uh, Taffy. Taffy 3, which at the mm -hmm. Battle of oh, Samar, yeah. right, did mm -hmm. unbelievable stuff with the USS Johnston under the command of Ernest Evans. And it, my friends and I were talking about the time when, in the battle, Evans turns the Johnston around for the third time. Could you imagine that? What did he just say? He said, come <laughs> no, about. No, I can't. He, no. he said, come about. Come about. We're limping. I mean, and, and, and the and the 16-inch guns of the Japanese are going through these ships because the bulkheads aren't heavy enough to detonate them. Poosh, right? Hmm. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a diagram of the first island chain and the second island chain, so I know what that is. Right? And so I've also got uh, a diagram of the Chinese anti-access area denial capabilities in terms of their weapons that range out to three and 4,000 miles, which would be the DF-26 anti-ship ballistic missile. I have that. I have China tightens its grip on the South China Sea, and it's a diagram of the um, China speeds conversion of the area into military strongholds, including missile shelters on the Fiery Cross Reef. So I have that, courtesy of, of our discussions. I have disputed claims, and it shows economic exclusion zones of the Philippines, of Vietnam, and then the Chinese nine dash line. I have that, courtesy of you. Um, I have uh, North Korea's growing scud range, reaching all the way to uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Congratulations to them. And that's about it. That's about it. But you have uh, contributed mightily to my uh, Western Pacific uh, understanding and to a lot of other people's, I have to say. That's why you're a favorite on this program. Um, 
Now, a lot of pessimism. Oh, my God. Look at this. Here's another one. Here's the uh, in, in Grant's new piece, right, on Taiwan. The first island chain, the second island chain map. I'm a map guy. And then it gives you a Taiwan location. You know, you can, if you want to suck me into reading your shit, throw a few maps in there, and I'm, I'm all about it. Especially, okay. if yeah. especially if they're good maps. Another good map of the South China Sea, the Spratly Islands. Right? Love that. Um, give me a reason for optimism. Is there one? Because you go through this uh, color yeah. co- you go through mm-hmm. this color code thing at the end of this at the end of this uh, dissertation. What would I what should I call it? Um, and I'm just gonna give grades. Cambodia red, Vietnam pink, Singapore pink, Malaysia pink, Laos red already, Thailand pink. Indonesia, light pink. East Timor, pink. Papua New Guinea, pink. New Zealand, dark pink. What? <laughs> right? That was being nice. Australia, yeah. blue, but with the wrong people in power, light pink. Right? And then my NMR, dark pink. Indo-Pacific is a kaleidoscope. <laughs> right? So is there any reason for optimism? It depends on what time of day you ask. And, you know, and, you know, sometimes it can seem, you know, overwhelming, but I don't think it is. Um, you've, uh, you know, the good thing that is that most, is that nowadays there is a recognition that China is a threat. And there wasn't even five years ago, or, or nobody could admit it. You know, they but now it's a pretty widely understood thing that that China is worth worrying about and worth doing something about. You see that in more places uh, than ever, and that would be the the basis from which to have some optimism. And then perhaps recall that maybe you know things seem pretty bleak. I should imagine when you know when Corregidor surrendered or Bataan surrendered, and it looked like we were going to lose. Um, so we've been in worse fixes before but and you know so it's that i think is how one might draw some optimism is that it seems as though we've waken up um wall street still has to be brought into line um and and but you know the but it's this is certainly the toughest spot we've been in that i can think of uh, in my lifetime in t- uh, in terms but, of an existential threat yeah i think they could you know, a few things go wrong, and especially as technology develops, and uh, that if have we don't you, have you forgotten? Ahead, have you forgotten the Cuban Missile Crisis, or were you not? Well, the, the, this is much worse. Yeah. You know, well, I you know, as a six-year-old, I'm not saying <laughs> I followed it closely, but but reading about it, right, I think right. I think this is actually much worse. So your yeah, father, your she, father, dinging a fighting hole in the backyard didn't seem to bother you when you were six. No, I'd have probably thought it was cool, you know. They, yeah. and, uh, the situation, uh, I'm quoting from the article now. The situation recalls a scene from the BBC comedy, Yes, Minister. <laughs> Sir Richard, standard foreign office response in a time of crisis in stage one, we say nothing is going to happen. Sir Humphrey, stage two, we say something may be about to happen, but we should do nothing about it. Sir Richard, in stage three, we say that maybe we should do something about it, but there's nothing we can do. Sir Humphrey, stage four, 
we say maybe there's something we could have done, but it's too late now. <laughs> so you're Does saying that, that familiar? you're yeah. saying that that might actually be the actual case. That's yeah, not fun. that's not funny, Grant. Just, through it. just for the record, that's not funny. No, it, it, if, if you see the show, it's hilarious. Um, it, I recommend the show to everybody who's listening. Uh, yes, Minister. It's on YouTube here and there. But, um, but yeah, that, that's, it, ultimately, it's not funny, you know, because this is what we've allowed to happen uh, with China. It's been obvious what's coming for 20 years with them, and yet we've ignored it. And it's only now that we're really waking up. And so I, I hope it's not too late, but at, at least we have woken up more or less, and now we'll see what what we do. Um, and you know, say it's flip the toss of the coin. You'd like to think we would have a little better odds, but um, but but it's uh, we've got got some problems. You know, one advantage that we do have is that um, you know China presents itself as a nice shiny modern place, but you go in there and you know it's like what, 400 million people live on the equivalent of four dollars a day you know they haven't got flush toilets in most of the country so it's it's not quite like they they say it is um and if we just um apply some pressure and don't for goodness sake stop propping them up with cash and technology and business uh, and and require them to play by the rules that you know let them make their own way uh, and that would pretty quickly, I think, give us uh, a nice advantage you know, if we, we wake up. All right, sir. What uh, what are you writing about next? Oh, goodness. I haven't. I have to write something about the uh, 311, the, what the, the, the tsunami earthquake um, that happened 10 years ago in Japan, in Japan. that killed 20,000 people or so. Um, the so-called Operation Tomodachi. I was asked to write a, a short something, some comments about that. Interesting. Interesting. Marine Corps responded to that, right? Um, they our, did. Our CBRN um, guys uh, headed up there. And, and well, yeah, the 3MEF got up pretty quickly, and but it was the sort of the unsung heroes. One was a civilian with the Marines on in Okinawa named Robert Eldridge, Dr. Robert Eldridge, who knew everybody. Um, on the Japanese side, like civilian mayors and governors. And he's the guy who really greased the skids. Um, and he was on the first helicopter up to up to the area. And he's the guy who, w- without him, I don't think the Marine uh, experience would have been very pleasant. Uh, but he, say, greased the skids and did wonderful work. And then the other guy who's gotten no credit almost was a fellow named Craig Kaczynski, Colonel Kaczynski at Camp Fuji. And he, on his own initiative and with some cover provided by uh, the Marine General at USFJ, he put together something called Task Force Fuji, which was his Marines from Camp Fuji, you know, a bunch of them, I forget the numbers, but 100-ish, basically got into vehicles and were able to get up to Sendai, which was where the airport had been uh, destroyed. And they are the guys who actually did the most of the hard work to restore the, the airport. And they, they say they never really got credit for it, but that was one of the main accomplishments of the, um, the Marines. And it had a huge psychological benefit because it showed that things could get back to normal because people were pretty dispirited up there. And by, by the Marines getting uh, 
the the airport up and sort of able to up and run and there was an air force sort of one of those airfield crews those guys that work magic um in tough circumstances that was there too and they did a great job and but it was craig kaczynski's getting task force fuji up up north uh which was really key because they were sort of the operating arm of the marine uh task force up there and it was his initiative, and everyone said it was impossible, et cetera, et cetera. And yet he got it done. And they say they never really got the credit for it uh, that they deserved. Um, so I'm at least giving them. I try to every chance I get. But but they they were the them. He and his guys and the lance corporals who were clearing the mud and the trees, et cetera, from the uh, the airfield are the guys who really, uh, you know, w- without them, you know, it's hard to see who'd have done the work. Um, so there's uh, a few stories that never quite got told the way they should have. But the Marines did have a, a nice role in that, um, although it was the, the Japanese who did the vast majority. The, the Japanese military, and particularly the GSDF, did 99% of the the, the relief work uh, in Operation Tomodachi. So, but there's, uh, so I have to write something uh, on the, the topic. All right. Well, we will look for it. Um, again, always uh, thought-provoking, especially to the future. And I think uh, I think the path to uh, the sustained, guaranteed freedom of uh, the world that we've grown up in is uh, the concerted action, or at least moderately concerted action of the free nations of the world uh, that say, "Yeah, we're not going to do this." And uh, and I think collectively there is a chance. Individually, I don't think there is. And so, Grant, you make us mindful of that. And uh, I appreciate your vigilance and your thought and your intellectual rigor. And and I like you. I'm, you know, again, I'm I'm curious, uh, you know, about the Marine Corps' plotted course of action. I just don't see, given you know, if you give the Chinese any credit for being smart, and you should how any type of ships that are in that weapons exclusion zone are not tracked and destroyed very early into the fight. And so to me, that forces you into agreements to get onto the land. Now, if you're on the land, to me, it's a different, much more plausible scenario. But right now, we don't have those agreements. And so, um, so again, concerning. And I guess we'll wait and see what happens. But thank you very much for the uh, enlightened conversation, sir. And, uh, and uh, all the best till we talk again. My pleasure. Okay, appreciate, always appreciate it. All right, thanks, Rat. Okay, out here. You bet. Grant Newsham. Yeah. Always. Uh, nah, he's great. Um, Grant has been um, truly one of the most uh, enjoyable parts of of uh, uh, again Almarine Radio getting ready to turn five years old. Yeah, in June. Holy shit. That'll do it on a uh, on a Wednesday, hump day. Uh, the Mensa Brothers on tomorrow. And uh, we're going to revisit the issue of the attack on al-Assad from the perspective of the President of the United States. And we're also going to talk about if we were going to create a rifle qualification program um what would we design what would we emphasize what would we design so it should be an interesting discussion 
either one of those would be a full program. So we'll see if we can do both of them and do them justice. Um, yeah, you know, um, if you didn't listen yesterday, uh, Will made the point that, you know, simply fueling up those ICBMs, you know, is an act of war. It shows intent. So the question is, you know, did Donald Trump want to go to war with Iran? I think you have the answer in what actually happened in that, you know, no Americans were killed. There was no retaliation beyond that. And so the exchange we settled for was we killed maybe their number one military guy and their response was to destroy some buildings and we let it ended there. So we're going to talk about that. And then, as I said, the uh, rifle qualification stuff. I'd, I'd kind of like to talk about the whole issue of masks. I don't think the masking is as significant as opening for business. I think that is the significant um, thing that has to be done. Whether you take your mask mandate off or not is, to me, irrelevant. You know, might, that might be something symbolic. Um, there's people who should continue wearing masks. And, um, but when you look at, when you, when you now listen to the discussion of more and more doctors, um, you know, this whole concept of herd immunity is coming to market. And let me tell you, the people who lead states around the nation have got to let business resume. And somebody, some public health official might say, well, there's going to be a cost to that. Well, no shit, man. There's a cost to keeping everybody locked up, too. And I think politicians have at some point have to say, you know what? I've got to allow business to resume. And it's up to our medical professionals. It's up to people to make wise decisions. But I can't save everybody from everything, right? The data presented to me shows that the concept of herd immunity is going through the population. The number of people inoculated now with the vaccines that are out there says that I've got to open this thing up. And if I'm going to err, I'm not going to err on the side of caution anymore. A year has been enough. A year has been enough. I've got to err on the side of all these business owners who have to make a living all these people that need to go back to work, and all these kids that should be back in school. Interesting little dynamic here is school unions overplaying their hand. And I think public opinion, looking at them with scorn, right? Looking at them with scorn. So, interesting stuff. So, we'll be back tomorrow on this day. Have a great day. Don't be afraid to get out there and change somebody's life. I am out.